This is Wordplay. Local voices, local writing. Brum Radio. Welcome to Wordplay on Brum Radio, bringing you some of the finest new fiction writing from our region. This show features an eclectic mixture of work from seven writers, dealing in subjects ranging from love, loss and lunch, to homework and home improvements. From flash fiction, longer pieces and poetry, there is something here for everyone. So, enjoy wordplay. Our first piece is some poetry. Darren Canan's work evokes the majesty and mystery of the everyday and is rooted in the world around us. Darren's words can also be found on the album Analogue Tales, which he created with the musician James Summerfield. This poem is called Saturday in Green Hill Cafe and is read for us by the author. Saturday in Green Hill Cafe. There's a miasma of vinegar and seaside postcard innuendo in the air in Hall Green. It is like dry ice flowing and tumbling over the top of your newspaper. The thrilled horse riders take the middle of the room hostage with chairs and racy gossip blowing and puffing their cheeks out, drinking energy drinks, all dressed in all-weather, weathered pink. Two of them are jousting each other with chips plucked from a single bowl, a pair of scout leaders with Toby jug-shaped faces, eating spaniel-eared toasted bacon sandwiches, engage in a chewy bout of serve-and-volley advice and confessions, their words vying with unfinished mouthfuls for release into the world. The owner is keen to offer you a tea in a bumper Union Jack mug. She's proud that the extra sugar heightens the freedom of watching the world go by. If you've ever seen a discarded letter, notebook or even a scrunched up shopping list and wondered about the story behind it, then our next piece will fascinate you. Written and read by Alison Jean Lester, this tale will strike a chord with anyone who remembers being asked to write a school essay about a work of fiction. Alison's most recent novel is called You Keep Means Happiness, and you can find her at alisonjeanlester.com. Now, stay tuned for A Message for George. A Message for George, whose essay on Pride and Prejudice I found in the grass, from Alison Jean Lester. This is a message for George H. of Droitwich Spa, Worcestershire. I found your English essay in the grass near the corner of St. Nicholas Street and Stalls Farm Road, crumpled, not in a ball, but more as if you had rolled it and twisted it. It had opened itself out again a bit and had been spattered by tar during recent roadworks. The paper is sticky. It's not so much an essay in the modern sense as it is in the old, because you've merely answered two questions, question three and question four. Well, you've tried. An essay is an attempt. It's from the French, George. It's also an assault. There's a good deal of red pen from teacher, and I won't duplicate her efforts. I'm deriving her gender from her handwriting. Speaking of which, your handwriting is beautiful. Your S's practically the F-shaped characters of antiquity. Lovely. She doesn't mention your penmanship on this paper. Has she elsewhere? I hope so. 
What I am here to do is to fill in the huge gaps she left. What's a boy to do with gaps that big? I mean, really. If a sentence is crystal clear to you, how is her simply writing vague, uncapitalized, I note, supposed to improve your future assaults? Let's have a look at question three. I gather from what you've written, you were asked to write about how Jane Austen goes about portraying Elizabeth Bennet's embarrassment. Or perhaps you were asked to choose a feeling yourself. If so, bravo, excellent choice. And not surprising, given how embarrassing it must be to be asked to read that book at your age. Or ever. Don't be bamboozled, George. Not everyone loves it. You begin your answer to question three this way. The writer starts with very broken-up sentences to portray her feelings of embarrassment. This clearly shows her feelings because the pauses show she's waiting and carefully choosing her words. Teacher says you need to be more technical than this, but I can see what you did there. All technical terms fail us when we're embarrassed, don't they? You're writing in an embarrassed way to underline your point. Genius. Moving on, second para. As well as this, the writer shows her embarrassment through how she talks to Mr. Darcy. She said, thank you again and again. This shows she was nervous or embarrassed because this isn't how someone talks to someone they're comfortable talking with. It is here that teacher writes vague and what do you mean? What could be clearer than what you've laid out though? I'll tell you what, George, I think you just need to change up the vocab. Change talking to communicating sometimes someone to a person. See what happens. In addition to this, you continue, her embarrassment is further shown through how Elizabeth starts talking to Mr. Darcy, saying, I am a very selfish creature. Okay, I have to interrupt you here because teacher didn't. First, the writer does not show her embarrassment, she shows Elizabeth's. Also, Mr. Darcy, why the inverted commas? Were you distracted by some texting? Focus, George, little things like that are huge in the real world. This shows her embarrassment because she's needs apostrophe, not the first time, not funny, almost dehumanizing herself because of how embarrassed she is to talk. There's a red arrow from teacher pointing from dehumanizing and asking how, which bit. What exactly about dehumanizing herself by calling herself a creature doesn't teacher get? Hold tight, George. Be strong. That bit's as obvious as it needs to be. I have to agree with red arrow number two, though, indicating the end of the sentence is not analytical. What we're dealing with here is a tautology, from the Greek meaning needless repetition in the same words. It's starting to feel as if you're saying we know she's embarrassed because she's embarrassed. I know you're not, but you sound like you are. Maybe you've taken your own embarrassment a mite far? Have a think about that. Question four is where things get beyond me. You write, the writer successfully shows it's difficult to express your feelings through the way Elizabeth starts talking, trying to tell Mr. Darcy something. This is effective because she dehumanizes herself, calling herself a creature. For this, you get a tick and a note at the bottom of the page. Good start, just needed more. It's not a good start, George, and you mustn't believe it is. If the answer to question four is supposed to be a summary of question three, then start again. Your answer shows neither the clarity nor the cunning of question three. It is neither precise nor poetic. So what am I missing? Why has teacher let you write this garbage now when she criticized you for something much tidier just a few lines before?
had to think about this for a long time. And then I wasn't thinking anymore. And I had it. Teacher wasn't thinking either. She'd given you a tick and called those two sentences good because they are so poignant. It is difficult to express your feelings. Poignant is from the French, George, originally meaning pricking, stinging. You prick us with this sentence. You, young George, adolescent essay twister, can say it with complete authority. You prick us, and we are stung. Next is Master of the Metal String, written and read by Anna Bradley. The story is inspired by Anna's grandfather, who passed away many years ago, but whose dignity and vulnerability as he died of cancer left a lasting impression. Master of the Metal String Grandad was Master of the Metal String. He pinged it. It was his rusty music, his cry for help. Imagine a guitar string fingered on repeat. That was just the sound of Grandad plucking his hospital bed while his lopsided mouth churned an inward chorus and he tried to tap out a Morse code with index finger. He would lie like a strange idiot, listening to rolls and hisses, looking at his patch of wall, the one a silvery pool of light hit and glowed. It was a perfect circle of happiness. I remember when we used to sit in a field of grass, putting wide reeds between two thumbs, exhaling into that tiny space. I had soft bones and could fit the sun between my thumb and forefinger. Now I know that that is a trick amongst many, just like the moonlight made Grandad see Grandma in the shadows from his metal bed. That was a trick too, what a little moonlight can do. Before life's edges hardened, there were perfect circles of happiness everywhere. My brother and I used to tease him, but it was the kind of teaser Grandad just laughed at. Grandad and Grandma stood there, stalwart against an ivory sun. When it was the nurses laughing at him and his gobbledygook, it wasn't so pretty. Oh, but you haven't heard the velvet words of his youth, I wanted to say, but tried to think a way of saying it, so they didn't giggle at me too. I wondered what game I would have to play to get them to love him. The other day I came with my mum. We brought some flowers. He chanted his shadowy hello. His skin looked like dry biscuits, and I asked myself when those authoritative cheeks turned so shallow. The reflective landscape of the hospital couldn't accommodate him any more. He looked as though he would flake away if I touched him, so I just stood there, his metal strumming the musical backdrop. So that I could remember him with enduring dignity, I closed my eyes and thought of the time we sat in a field of grass. The sun came out and identified some wild flowers and beginnings of other buds, differentiated them from the grass. What a little sunlight can do. The nurses stopped laughing, the finger stopped pinging. Next up is Growing Up on Lard by Maisie Chan, a writer now based in Glasgow. She can be found online at maisiechanwrites.com. 
The piece is read by the novelist Catherine O'Flynn and, fair warning, may make you feel hungry. Growing Up on Lard by Maisie Chan. I grew up in Birmingham to English read white parents who were loving but gave me steak and kidney pies to eat instead of rice. Not that they needed to give me rice, but I blame my lack of Chinese-ness on the lack of rice I was fed as a kid. Have to blame something, right? I mean, I couldn't really blame the blessed souls who had chosen to adopt me. Rice just wasn't part of their daily consumption. And I couldn't really hold my biological parents responsible for wanting to give me to someone else to take care of me. Maybe I was just a baby that looked like she shouldn't eat too much rice. I can't really say. All I know is that our chips were cooked in lard. The other Chinese kids at school, all two of them, their parents owned takeaways and of course they would have rice there. Hills of white rice, cooked and steaming with the romantic mists of the Far East. Fried rice, shook and coated with the love and affection that soy sauce brings with it. A Chinese kitchen without soy sauce is like a French kitchen without butter, or a British kitchen without ketchup. Of course, Chinese takeaways also had chips for those British people who didn't want rice with their sweet and sour pork. Did they also cook their chips in lard? Had the Chinese who resided in those takeaways ever had a fish finger or chicken Kiev? Can my Britishness be attributed to the amount of fish fingers I ate with tomato sauce on a piece? Perhaps. I remember the packed lunches that I'd take to school every day. They consisted of roast chicken on buttered white bread, a packet of cheesy snaps and a can of orange tango. With technical precision, I would expertly place two and a half snaps on one triangular chicken sandwich. Still, to this day, my taste buds appreciate the beauty that is a crisp sarnie. The feeling of crisps breaking with every tenuous bite, yet softly cushioned by the layers of roast chicken, made my taste buds stand on end with anticipation. The realisation that my adapted masterpiece held within its breaded walls a burst of fake cheese flavouring made my heart swell with love. I ate this every day for years, sitting on the plastic green chair in the dining hall, making sure I ate my crusts. Mum told me all the time, Come on, Bab, eat your crusts like a good girl, they'll make your hair curly. She lied. Perhaps it only curls if you're English. We Chinese are well known for our naturally straight hair, And no matter how many crusts I ate, my hair never did curl. I would always watch with mild amusement and wonderment when both my parents would spread dripping onto a piece. The bits of white pig fat sitting precociously in a lump where my mum couldn't be bothered to distribute evenly. The amber jelly-like substance sitting in between. The poor person's snack. My dad's shining example of a ready meal in pre-microwave era cuisine was an OXO cube drowned in boiling water. The mucky brown, murky depths were reminiscent of the local canal with its shopping trolleys and rusted bicycles poking out of the water, trying not to drown. Into this cheap concoction, he would submerge roughly ripped pieces of sliced white bread. What terror it must have been to that piece of bread. Scalded by dirty-looking brown liquid and then stuffed into a mouth where no teeth resided, due to a massive intake of sugar at a young age, to be chomped and mauled to death by a hard set of gums. Is there such a person as a food psychoanalyst? A Captain Birdseye Freud or a Sarah Lee Young? 
If there were, I'm sure they would lay me down on their black leather couch and I'd spill my repressed secrets like molten cheddar cheese oozing furiously from the triangular pockets of a Breville toasted sandwich, regurgitating my sordid past of fry-ups and bubble and squeak. I'd confess my love of Bernard Matthews chicken drummers and Finder's crispy pancakes, the meaty torture of battered and deep-fried food with grease bleeding from their golden outer covering. I'd guiltily confess my love of stew and dumplings, the animal fat content of which would probably have formed a small piglet had it been put together. Bacon and egg sandwiches were my guilty pleasure. My devil. Sausage and plum tomatoes soaking into white bread. Yummy yum. Penetrating my memories and raising my body fat percentage to 35. Yes, yes, I can smell the odours of my youth. They haunt me like the piercing beep beep sound of the smoke alarm when mum burnt the chips. It was my great British breakfast childhood. There was no problem trying to coax me to eat like there is with some kids. My younger brother had to be prodded and normal chicken soup was transformed by name to the heroic Superman soup by my mom just to get him to take one spoonful. Not me. I ate and I ate. I was fondly nicknamed the human rubbish bin by my mom, who thought I had the insides like a hoover. I just sucked up all remaining food from everyone's plates. Waste not, want not, was the motto in my house. There were children starving in Africa, so it would have been terrible of me to have left one baked bean on my plate. Nothing was left over, nothing forgotten. We were not a rich family, renting a terrace from the council, yet I never felt we were one of those families who were struggling to make ends meet. We had too much. The cupboards were always overflowing with food. At the back of every one it was guaranteed that there would be an out-of-date packet of blancmange and a jar of pickled onions from some Christmas hamper way back in the late 1970s. There was a time, too, that I tried to be more Chinese. I would watch kung fu movies and, of course, ordered prawn crackers with my takeaways. I'd tell the kids at school that Jackie Chan was a relative. But maybe I just didn't eat the rice in the right way. I used to scoop it into my prawn cracker and use it like a spoon. Of course, I'd then eat the makeshift spoon. That's just not Chinese. Sometimes we ate out at fancy Chinese restaurants when the biological parents of the other Chinese kids my parents fostered would come to visit. I would be put to the Chinese test of authenticity, using the dreaded chopsticks. I recall one time visiting the Chungying Garden restaurant in Chinatown. I flatly refused to use them. In my defence, I proclaimed how useless they were. I could get more in my mouth with a spoon, I shouted. I just couldn't see the point of trying to get food into my mouth with two long sticks with tiny ends. Where was the logic in chopsticks? Which fool had invented this finicky mechanism of click-clacking two sticks together to use as eating utensils? The truth was that I failed the test. I couldn't use them. Didn't know how. I wasn't really Chinese. Just a make-believe phantom. A doppelganger with a packet of strawberry chewits in her hand. Matt Black is a poet and prose writer for both adults and children and composed a poem which featured in the film for Coventry's successful bid to be the 2021 City of Culture. You can find more at matt-black-words.co.uk Read by Andrew Grucock, Proud of Our Parking is a warm tale of community and redemption via traffic control. Proud of Our Parking by Matt Black 
In our town, interesting stuff does happen. We have two cinemas and one sort of theatre. Sort of because no one seems to go and no one knows what is on. Though a lot of us think we are theatre kinds of people. Maybe our minds are on other things. Maybe we do not want to be overwhelmed by an unnecessary bustle of culture. In our town, we have an excellent ratio of parking space to shoppers. The council are very proud of our facilities for parking, and they put out a bright new leaflet every summer. The leaflet, proud of our parking, includes phrases like a wonderful place to park and it's a positive pleasure to drive through the streets knowing there will be an easy to get into space not too far from wherever you are heading. This is mostly down to Tony, the parking enforcement officer. At six foot five, Tony looks over and beyond the shiny, freshly washed roofs of escorts, berlingos, even four by fours. Tony used to be mean. He used to slap tickets on windscreens in Warwick Street and lurk in the alleyway by Clark's fruit and veg shop to spy on the return of quick-stop, no-pay parkers and their horrified faces. The word went round the cafes and houses. Watch out if tall Tony's about. Everyone knew Tony only took that job when his mum and dad died. His mum died in April. His dad, who had never cooked a meal in his life, made beans on toast for two months, but realised he couldn't do without her, and died in July. The doctor wrote loss as cause of death on the certificate. People took sides about Tony's parking ticket fever. Some said we shouldn't be paying fines to help Tony with his grief. Others said the fines were fair. And anyway, you couldn't blame him in the circumstances. The town's amateur psychologists, meeting in Coffee Architect, summarised it as all emotional justice. Some things aren't fair, but you just got to let them happen, they said over a table of frothy cappuccinos. We felt sad about Tony growing mean because he had been lovely. He'd worked on the checkout in Tesco's, one of the chirpy ones, and spent time helping out the soup kitchen for the homeless. When Tony's folks died, Tony's eyes died, and he became the parking enforcement officer. For five years, the Goodens kept a weather eye on Tony when they went shopping. He seems a bit better this winter. We look after people like that in our town. It's an invisible kind of nursing. Tony's doctor, Dr McFarlane, was a wizard. He worried about Tony, who was getting thin. He drank in the new inn, a good place to hear stories. He heard how a visitor from rugby got a parking ticket and saw Tony laughing with pleasure, at which he punched Tony and Tony's nose bled across the potatoes outside Clarkie's. We read about it in the local paper. This happened in September. In October, Dr McFarlane went to Birmingham and had a lot of trouble parking. He realised how good the parking is in our town. He had a vision and went for a drink with Tony. When Tony presented his vision for Proud of Our Parking to the parking enforcement panel, they were delighted. When the parking enforcement panel presented their vision for proud of our parking to the highways committee, they were over the moon. When the highways committee presented their vision for proud of our parking to the town council, there were cheers in the town hall. Tony mostly lets people off their parking fines these days. We still keep an eye on him. It keeps us busy looking after stuff like this and talking about it. This is probably why we don't get to the theatre. Morning Fog is a tale of friendships made and friendships lost, taking place at a funeral. The piece is written and read by Rob Jefferson Brown, who can be found on Twitter at Right Said Rob, right with a W. Early morning fog. Shoes shuffling slowly forward. The click-clack of heels on tiles. The antiphonal sniffles, the blowing of a nose, low murmurings, 
the closing soft strains of Everybody Hurts. You may now kiss the widow. Lise, sorry, so sorry. Thanks for being here, Tal. You're coming back to ours, aren't you? Sure, Bab, sure. See you there. They release each other, and he walks into the light, eyes squinting against the brightness of the morning sun, and heads towards the small group, furtively breathing in smoke and nicotine. From his jacket he pulls out the packet. Smoking kills. Yeah, and so does the West Coast mainline Pendolino to London Euston. All right, Tal. Sure. You? As good as, considering. Tragic. Fucking tragic. He nods at the others around him, then walks to the front of the chapel, where they are already carrying in the next poor bugger. Really is a conveyor line. Except for family, he'd known Carl as long as anyone. Since being seated together on that first day at school, they'd been inseparable. Well, not quite ever since, but for a hell of a long time. The terrible twins. They'd joined cubs together, then quit together two months later, not having realised just how boring it was going to be. They'd learned to swim together, passed their motorbike tests together, and been to their first gig together. They'd even lost their virginities on the same day to the same girl, paid for with savings from their summer jobs in the markets. He looked back at Lisa. Grief suited her. She looked good in black. Was still a neat package. Christ, was he really lusting after his best man's wife, no widow, when he was still being turned into ash? He walked back to the car. He'd come alone, not wanting or needing the hassle of transporting anyone. He was used to coming and going on his own terms these days. It's strange how you can lose touch with even those closest to you. Him and Carl, always together until death. Or until the rest of life slowly seeps into yours and sends you both drifting, at first in the same direction and then gradually taking different trajectories until you are leading totally separate lives. He supposed it had begun when Angela left. Four's a night out, three's an accident waiting to happen. Then... After he'd got his act together and shifted to Kent, contact had become less and less, however much they'd both joked that the M25 would never come between them. Until, inevitably, one year he realised he had not sent and had not received a Christmas card. And that was the way it had stayed for almost ten years, until that day six weeks ago. There, in his inbox. Carl Blakely has sent you a message on Facebook. Is that you, Tal, you old tart? Don't know much about FB, but I do know I need one real friend. Get in touch, mate. And make it quick. Our final piece is the longest of our tales and deals with the immense bottomless loss of a bereaved mother. Home Solutions for Mould is written by S.R. Masters, whose debut novel, The Killer You Know, will be released in August 2018. The story is read by the author.
Home Solutions for Mould by SR Masters Martin and I used to talk all the time. Both of us carried around the sort of nervous energy that no amount of exercise or personal projects or sex ever seemed to burn off. Not even Alison, in her teary first three years, those years well-meaning Facebook mums and Facebook dads had made us terrified of, came close to wearing us out. Talking endlessly was our only release, the only way we ever got to sleep at night. All that went when Alison died, both the energy and the closeness. We began to orbit one another with all the vast distance and cold of rocks in space. He'd be at work when I woke up, would come home late and reheat what I'd cooked in the microwave while I showered and then read in bed. I'd fall into a semi-sleep to the sound of him clacking at the keyboard in the lounge below our bedroom, rarely noticing when he finally joined me at two or three in the morning. What do you get up to at night? I asked once. I don't know, he said, looking for something. I wasn't prepared to let us die too. It wasn't fair, like burning down the farm for the sake of a field. We were from a time before Alison, and while Alison brought us immeasurable joy and exciting new purpose, she wasn't meant to be all we were about. Our relationship was better than that. That was how it began. If our marriage was to stand any chance... I needed to find out what he was thinking, what was happening in his life. And when we stopped talking, I knew I had to rely on other means. Her funeral was in April. He went from short sentences to one word if I was lucky responses in October, specifically around the time Alison would have turned seven. A new year was underway when I started. I found his laptop open on the table one morning, switched on but awaiting a password. The bread was in the toaster. The coffee machine was bubbling. On a whim, I typed in... A-L-I-S-O-N His home screen came up. The desktop image was of Mount Snowden. I didn't snoop then. I was too touched. The following week, I tried going back to work. One of the girls thought it would be a brilliant idea to show photos of her six-year-old's birthday party. They sent me home when I vanished from my desk and was found in one of the toilet cubicles nursing my hand. The doctor was impressed with my Rolando's fracture She said it was quite rare, although she had come across a few in drunk and hormonal teenage boys who had fancied their chances fighting a brick wall. I waited downstairs for Martin to come home. He didn't notice the cast on my hand. In the dark that night, he came to bed but lay on top of the covers. How long are we going to do this, I said. He sighed and said nothing. Do you still love me, I asked. His response was quick and decisive. He rolled over and placed his hand on my side. Only when he spoke did I realise he'd been crying. His voice was thick and up in his nose. God, Jennifer, don't ask me that, please. We aren't talking anymore, I said. I just need some time so I can solve this. I was signed off again the next morning. I knew it would inspire a bitch fest in the office. God, her daughter died nearly a year ago. Is she going to spend forever off sick? Perhaps they were right. The laptop was on. This time, once I'd logged into his account, I opened up the browser. I knew his internet history deleted itself so the toolbar was empty, but I'd recently read an article in which a woman kept tabs on her husband's affair by typing random letters into the search box to bring up his previous searches. I typed in A. After a moment, a small list appeared below my letter at the top right of the screen. My stomach muscles tightened and I looked to the left of the screen. What if I found porn? Or something worse? Then I looked. Aston Villa appeared first, his favourite football team. I quickly scanned down the list. 
No anal sex, no Asian hookers. Instead I saw Are There Beavers in England and Air Crash Investigation episodes. I laughed and felt myself relax. The only thing slightly unusual in the whole list was Are Souls Real? I'm a get-a-little-man-in-the-village-to-do-it sort of person from a long line of get-a-little-man-in-the-village-to-do-it people. My parents had a gardener, an electrician, a cleaner, even a man whose sole purpose was to tend to our gravel drive once a month. Martin isn't a classic male in any sense, but his stubborn refusal to pay for help is something straight out of a cartoon from a 70s woman's magazine. It's equally funny and infuriating because, as a man of indie rock persuasion, he isn't naturally gifted when it comes to DIY. He fills in the large gaps in his knowledge by going on internet forums and watching instructional videos. That's mostly what I discovered looking at his history during the first few weeks. How do I bleed a radiator? My fridge is too noisy. Fix for condensation on windows. He had channelled his grief into home maintenance. The best was home solutions for mould, to which I applied a metaphorical spin, given the stagnant state of our relationship. That was about as insightful as it got. I checked the radiator in the fridge and the windows. They were respectively bled, muted and dry. My approach was somewhat random to start with. I'd click letters here and there and hope for the best, often trying out Q and Z due to their good positions on the keyboard, although they were frequent disappointments. Soon I was favouring some letters more than others. W was my absolute favourite. Why this and when that? The Ws filled the entire space the browser allocated to the drop-down list. They were the mother pot and the honey load. Buried amongst questions about drill bits and garden tools, I found, what are the side effects of antidepressants? What churches are near Blythe? Who is the best philosopher? Why can't I concentrate at work? Okay, so they weren't exactly windows into his soul, but to me they showed me he wanted to move forward, showed me he really was searching for this solution. Murky portholes, perhaps. I had to start keeping a note of all the W questions because new, mostly boring ones would appear overnight, shoving the old ones down the list towards oblivion. Sometimes I couldn't remember which ones I'd already seen and which ones were new. I tried subtly instigating conversations about my discoveries. Do you think the GP would refer us to counselling, if we asked? Or maybe if we went out more to some philosophy lectures, that might be nice. I don't know, my love, he'd say. Around the house, I left a book about philosophy, leaflets about bereavement and a pamphlet the church had sent through the door. Only the book didn't end up in the bin. It was approaching February when I was tempted away from the W's. The T was asking to be pressed. It was just an accident, really, a flight of fancy. It wasn't like I was pressing lots of different letters that morning. It wasn't like I wanted my heart broken. When I saw what was second in the drop-down list, second of four just behind Tree Surgeon in Blythe Midlands. I knew what it was he'd been trying to solve, and I started to cry. Tomboy traits. At times I'd found myself trying to blame Alison for what happened, but that's mostly because I knew what lay down the road of blaming Martin, Mr DIY, Mr A job's not worth doing if I can't do it myself, Mr I'll build a treehouse on my own. It's not as difficult or monstrous as it sounds either, blaming her, and maybe why my husband was looking up a word that was so frequently employed to describe Alison in lieu of handful and pain in the arse. Perhaps if she'd been a little less outdoorsy, a little less adventurous, 
then she would have stayed inside and played with dolls instead of racking up more cuts and fractures than most people sustain in their whole lives. Perhaps she'd have been safer. And if I'm truthful, what bothered me most was it wasn't a very big step from Alison's a tomboy to Alison's so like Jennifer. How many times had that popped up over the years? Friends and family remarking on her energy or her will, the levels of passive aggression increasing the older and more frustrating she became to them. And how much of a leap then to, perhaps if you'd painted her room pink, perhaps if you'd made her wear her hair long, perhaps if you'd made her aspire to be a fairy princess, then perhaps, just perhaps, she wouldn't have fallen through the floor and broken her neck. If Martin was trying to blame me, I thought I'd try to be angry about it. Maybe I would try blaming him after all. There was a black harmony in the house with me reciprocating his emotional distance, grunting instead of speaking, walking away when he came to me. From the outside, our orbit must have looked the same as always, but there is a crucial difference when you are no longer just a passive participant. I even managed to sleep a little bit, something I put down at first to the gradual reduction of Martin's late-night keyboard clacking. Grudges aren't for me, though. I don't have a way to switch off my rational brain. I don't really blame anyone for what happened to Alison, and I didn't really think Martin did. Sometimes, there really are such things as accidents, where causes align irrespective of what you did or didn't do. Blame in these cases is nearly big enough on its own to fill the hole left behind when someone dies. It feels substantial, it gives meaning to things, but inside it's hollow. I'd stopped looking at his searches for a while. When I couldn't hold a grudge any longer and my insomnia returned, I became curious about his diminishing late-night use of the computer. I missed that sound. On some level, even though he couldn't possibly know I was spying on him, I felt we were still communicating. And if we were still communicating, there was a chance we could go back to how it was before. One morning, around the beginning of March, I logged onto the computer using his password and opened up the browser. The screen was hard to see as early morning sunlight shone through the patio doors that looked out onto the garden. Standing in a dressing gown that probably still had Alison's DNA on it, I doubt I will ever wash it again. Waiting for the coffee and the toast, I typed in A. Nothing was there. I typed in S and H and Y. Still nothing happened. I moved the laptop into the shade and still saw nothing. The search history had been erased. I reached up and pulled the lapels of the dressing gown tighter to my chest. I looked around the kitchen, then out into the garden through the doors at the giant oak in which a treehouse with broken floorboards still stood. The dark eye of its window glared at me, so I glared back, both of us accusing the other. It was me that broke the stare. I went back to the laptop. The letter I looked appealing. A sentence appeared this time, and I drew a long breath. Is my wife angry with me? No, I said. No, I'm not. The D called out to me from the left of the keyboard. A big grin turned on its side. I pushed it. Do you acknowledge the anniversary of her death? I think you have, my love, I said. I did my best to stop the single tear from escaping down my cheek, tilted my head slightly upward and tried to think about something else. It's not crying if the tear never leaves the eye. It fell when I leaned forward to pull the laptop screen down. I wiped it away with the back of the outstretched hand and went to pull it down again. W. How could I have forgotten W? I noticed my heart beating faster, like it had risen to the surface to warn me. I pressed W anyway. One sentence appeared in the search bar. Cold spread through my chest and into my belly. 
I felt my jaw lock my mouth into place and an involuntary moan escape through the small gap between my lips. I pulled my arm back and folded it over the other defensively, like the words might jump from the screen and bite me. Why do I see my dead daughter in the garden? I haven't seen her yet, not properly. The anniversary is next week, and so I am hoping I might then. For now, I keep watch from the window in the bedroom. It's directly above the patio doors in the kitchen where I now know Martin sits conducting his own vigil. He doesn't know, I know. I went down one night and saw him there, propped up in the dining chair with his back to me, one hand splayed on the glass. Of course, I wonder if I really saw those words on the screen. Time alone can do strange things to your mind. I won't know because he changed the password the day after. But perhaps that password change was indicative of something new, because that night he came home and asked if I wanted to go out to dinner. And we did, and although we barely spoke, when we came back he kissed my cheek before I went upstairs to shower and read and pretend to go to sleep. Perhaps on the night of the anniversary I'll go down and sit with him, but for now I feel close enough. We might be in different rooms, yet really we are in the same place now. Sometimes I think I see something moving in the dark of the treehouse, another, darker shadow. It scares me, although I think it shouldn't. When my hand starts trembling, I touch the glass and think of all the things Martin and I will talk about once we get started. Thank you for listening to Wordplay. We hope that you enjoyed this sample of the great writing produced here in the Midlands and hope you will join us again on Brum Radio, which aims to champion all the region has to offer. Wordplay was produced by Andrew Grucock and Bridge Williams and presented by Blake Woodham for Brum Radio.